We're going to pray twice this morning, once at the beginning and then once at the end. It is my honor to open God's Word as a means of encouragement and perspective clarification for you. But before we pray, after the reading of God's Word and its study, I thought it would be most appropriate for you, having heard the hearts of these men, hearts of grace and a desire for healing, hearts of humble forgiveness and confession of weakness and sin. That's the gospel lived out. And that needs to be sealed by affirming that in prayer before our great God who has given us the means to that healing. And I'd like to invite you, if you would join me, to stand please and let's unite together and commit these commitments you have just heard to the Lord in prayer and to our part into facilitating the healing that needs to occur. So would you stand with me, please? Thank you. Let's pray together. Father, as I was listening this morning to words that I knew were coming, I was grateful for the work that needed to be done only by you to secure that work of the heart, that expression in words. But Lord, our desire today is is that not only what has been done in private and said in private and now in public would be verbalized, but it would be expressed and experienced in relational reality. Lord, I pray that where mistrust has been born, that trust would grow that on the seedbed of this morning, there would be real healing. Not just for these families and these leaders, but for this church family as they've been impacted by it. Lord, we confess there are things we don't know. There are things that we don't understand, but we know you do. And we do understand the heart of the gospel and the requirements of it. And so we commit ourselves to that, to be agents of influence as God would give opportunity to affirm and support that where the enemy might sow discord and where words are spoken or actions taken that would compromise or make vulnerable these commitments, that we would be your tools to support and affirm and supply the strength necessary to secure the work that you want to accomplish. The psalmist has said how good and how pleasant, literally how wonderful it is when brothers dwell together in unity. It's like the anointing oil that flowed off of Aaron's head and off his beard, that fragrant, sweet savor that brought life to the heart and pleasure to the spirit. Like the dew of Hermon on a hard work day flowing down cool air from a mountaintop in the difficult field of labor and it refreshes. Lord, that's my prayer. And Lord, I'm asking for this congregation, my brothers and sisters, for the leaders of this church and for my brother. And Lord, you would allow us all to experience because of your work in our hearts and lives through your Son, our Savior, and His great gospel that we would experience the pleasure of sweet savor and the refreshing of cool from your hand blessing. 
Lord, I pray in Jesus' name you would protect and you would promote. You'd protect this work and you would promote your glory. You would shepherd us as we seek to follow you. For we are your sheep and you are a great shepherd. To this end, I ask it for us all. And I ask it in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, if you'll join me in 1 Peter chapter 2. In the moments that we have remaining, it is my honor, and I do take it as a trust, to not only give voice in this service, but to give encouragement to you. And as I've thought about this morning and the potential of it, what has been on my heart is that we would maximize what God has called us to do in this community and in this place for his glory. You see, there's more at stake here than just the relationship between some families or even in this church family. What's at stake here is the reputation and the veracity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The city of Burbank needs a church that not only says the words, it shows the evidence of those words. Not only proclaims the gospel, it displays the gospel. I believe that's what's happened here this morning. And my prayer is that as the days unfold, as the future works itself out in your church, your families, and in your life, you'll recognize that for the sake of the glory of God, for the sake of this city and those who have yet to come to know the gospel, and for the sake of this church family, for your sake, we will not only live to proclaim the gospel, we will commit ourselves to more fully expressing it. I've entitled my encouragements to you today for their sake for his sake and for your sake. My goal today is to encourage you from the word of God to embrace and pursue a heart style and a lifestyle that validates the gospel we proclaim. And to that end, I want to invite you to follow with me in 1 Peter chapter 2. A context for a paragraph that I want to highlight for you and punctuate. In the time allotted, these will be highlights. But I think they're foundational. First Peter is a missionary letter. It is written to a group of people that are enduring great persecution. They've been scattered all over the Roman Empire. They're enduring great loss, difficult days. Peter is encouraging them and defining and calibrating perspective for them. In a tough season, remember this, God has sovereignly, supernaturally elected, chosen, and rescued you. God at great cost and of great love has purchased with precious blood, the blood of his son, your salvation. Through the supernatural sowing of the seed of God, he has transformed your heart and wants to effect even greater transformation. God has been at work by his grace, unmerited favor. Don't forget 
He chose you, He paid for you, and He has supernaturally sowed His seed of life through His Word in you. You have been blessed and gifted and transformed and entrusted as agents of that great benefit to declare God's glory, His worth, and to bear witness to the same grace you've received to the end that others might glorify and exalt Him and that they might know Him. Chapter 2 begins by talking about the fact that we're to jettison and to get rid of things that handicap us. He says in verse 1, put aside all malice. That's just a word for general evil and all guile, manipulative speech, hypocrisy, where we act one way when inwardly we're another way, envy, wanting what you have and hating you for it, or slander, the, the words we say in private meant to diminish or damage We're to throw that aside, and that action has to happen before, verse 2, the longing for the pure milk of the Word, which continues that desire of God to transform us, is able to take effect. And the Word of God unleashed, after we jettison the barriers to its realization, makes us living stones in a house where God's glory desires to reside. The church as living stones. Jesus being the chief cornerstone, the anchor upon which everything is derived and grounded and founded. And as the church, we are the house where the glory of God is on display. And we are the agents, the missionaries, the ambassadors, the priests who not only worship him, with offerings of praise, giving our very life as well, but we become the mouthpiece and the means by our life and our words that enable people to know God and to experience Him. Read with me chapter 2, verse 9. You are a chosen race, referring to the body of Christ redeemed by His grace, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Now, just look up for a minute. Priesthood, priest, pontifex in Latin, means bridge builder. You're a conduit. You're a mediator. You're not the mediator between God and man that Jesus is, but you're a means that Jesus uses to build a bridge, a priest would do, between those who don't have access to God to the end that they might have access to God. You're not only royal, you're an agent to connect people who don't know God to God and so that you might declare his excellencies. You're a unique people designed for his glory and for the blessing and betterment of this community. A people for God's own possession, verse 9, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You've re- you have not received mercy once upon a time, but now you have received mercy. And again, this emphasis, verse 11, get rid of the things that handicap that. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers, because this is not home, to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. And handicap the purpose for which you've been called, saved, and commissioned. Now I want to point out verse 12. Keep your behavior excellent. 
not just the things you say that are excellent proclamations about the great God who has changed you, but keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. That's those who don't know God. They're not a people of God. So that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, Unbelievers who don't know God, who don't understand, who misinterpret, who mislabel, who misunderstand the things that they would say that misrepresent your life, live in such a way so that in the things that they slander you as evildoers, that they may on account, look at verse 12, on account of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God In the day of visitation. I want to highlight what you should get out of verse 12. People who don't get it will get it because of the way you live it. People who don't understand will understand because of the way you live your life. Not just the words you say, but the life you live. The day of visitation is judgment day. People who are skeptics, cynical, who don't get it, this verse says, will give glory to God on that day for the deeds that you displayed that enabled them to secure the grace you've experienced, to believe what you believe, not because they understood it, because they saw it. And now that they see it, When he returns, rather than being judged, they are being agents of praise because God saved them like he saved you because he saw in you what they could not understand without you. You see, living the gospel, not just saying it, builds bridges to people who need to know and see and glorify the one you know and see. And you're the means to it, not just your words proclaiming his excellencies and the mercies you've received, but your good deeds that undeniably validates that truth. So outsiders become worshipers. It's for his sake, his glory that we live right. And it's for their sake that we live right. Can you say amen to that? See, the biggest obstacle in the church today is not the truth we proclaim. It's the life that validates that truth. Culture doesn't get it. They can't get it. They need to see it. And the Spirit of God will use your life to display it. So in the time I have left, I want to punctuate the summary of the conduct that validates the gospel. Chapter 2 goes on to talk about that conduct, and he basically, in summary, talks about citizens showing respectful honor, employees showing respectful service. Chapter 3 begins with a spouse showing respectful silence and service to an ungodly spouse. To husbands, verse 7, chapter 3, honorable understanding and gracious service to their spouse. If I were going to summarize the things that precede the punctuating paragraph we're going to look at, it would sound like this. What is the heart and life look like that validates the gospel? It's the excellent behavior that is to be on display It's the conduct that refutes, validates, and glorifies. Here it is. It's doing right when it's hard to do it. 
It's doing right even when you're done wrong. If there's something in common about the paragraphs, I'm just going to highlight a general theme for to get to this bottom line. It's this. Even if government isn't what government should be, do right. Even if it's hard. Even if your employer isn't treating you like he should treat you, do right. Even if he doesn't do right. And to a spouse of a husband who's not behaving as he promised to behave, you do right even if he doesn't do right. Be what you're supposed to be even if it's hard. And then you find the text that I want to preach on this morning. Verse 8, to sum up. And this is my punctuation to you. For his sake, for their sake, and now for your sake. Verse 8, to sum up. Some of your Bibles read finally. It's an emphatic phrase in the original language. It means this is the bottom line. If I'm going to take all of the excellent behavior and I'm going to boil it down and I'm going to say if you don't get anything, get this. This is what you need to get. This is the heart style. This is the lifestyle. This is the bottom line to sum up. Let all be no exceptions, no exclusions from the pastors to the last row to the Workers in other places, to sum up, let all be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. Now, here's the first ground or reason for this bottom line, and that's why I'm saying it's for your sake, for our sake. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Ground or reason for living in the way that I've just summed up, Peter said, is because there's a blessing attached to living this way and implied you're forfeiting blessing if you fail to live this way. He goes on to say, verse 10, another conjunction, for let him who means to love life And see good days, refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking guile. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. There's a second reason you ought to pursue this for your sake. Not only because there's blessing attached to it. God from heaven blessing you with bounty that he desires to give. If you'll manifest these qualities of heart in your life, there's a second reason. You want to love life? Do you want to experience good days? How many want that? I want that. I want that in my home. I want that in my marriage. I want that in my family. I want that in my church. I want to love life. And I want to see good days. And the conjunction introduces the reality that God wants that too. And if you want it, here's the heart style you pursue to experience it. You see, this is not only for the sake of God's glory or the salvation of this community. This is for the blessing that you desire if you want to love life and see good days. And there's another connector, verse 12, 4. The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous. Contextually, those who embrace and live this lifestyle, both in attitude and in verbal expression. For the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous 
and his ears attend to their prayer, which means he's your advocate, or but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So here's a third motivator. Blessing, a life I'm going to love, and I can have God as my advocate and ally or as my adversary. Which do you want in your life, family, or church? The answer to that is obvious. And that is the consequence of pursuing a heart style, attitudes, and commensurate actions that are the bottom line, excellent behavior that glorifies God, validates the gospel for them, and invites the blessing of God on you, your church, and your life. Anybody want to know what that is? I do too. A heart that validates the gospel. A heart that glorifies God. And a heart that brings blessing into your life. I'm just going to highlight some things and punctuate some others. First of all, it's a harmonious heart. Look at the words. To sum up, let all be harmonious. Let me put it in a different way. It's a heart that says, I want to get a long heart. Homo fron, homo same fron mind. It doesn't mean we think the same things. It doesn't mean we have the same opinions. This is not making a person think the same, but it is cultivating and displaying a spirit that leads to oneness and unity of heart. It is the spirit and attitude which promotes common ground and focuses on the places of agreement. This mindset, lifestyle, heart style is not argumentative or negative. It is harmonious. It is used once in the New Testament here, and it's characterized by a lack of complaining, grumbling, and murmuring. The antonym, the opposite of this word is gunazo, which means to speak secretly of your displeasure. It is to grumble. It is to complain. It is to express dissatisfaction. A harmonious heart, it's not that you don't, or it's not that you don't ever disagree, but you emphasize that which promotes unity and harmony. It's positive. It is I want to get a long heart. Peter says, let me bottom line with you. The heart style that validates the gospel and invites glory for him and blessing for them and for you begins with a harmonious heart. It is a resolution and a determination to get along. Number two, it's a sympathetic heart. Sim with pathos to feel, you, you know this, sympathy, to feel with someone, to suffer with someone. Here's the flavor of it as it plays itself out. To put yourself in someone else's shoes in such a way that you not only identify with them, you feel with them, you understand them. It says, I can see what you're saying and I feel what you're feeling even before it seeks to speak. You've heard this before, it's not new, but it goes well with a sympathetic heart. It is a heart that says, I seek to understand before being understood. What a different world it would be. What a different home we would have. 
If our heart style was seeking to understand, to be other-centered in our attitude. I saw a picture of the year a few years ago. It was a picture of a, a little boy in the corner, facing the corner, obviously under discipline. And beside him, perhaps you saw it, it was in Country Magazine. Uh, his brother, obviously his brother, and he's over in the corner with his brother, arm around him, sitting in the corner with him. That's this. I know where you are. I feel what you feel. I want to walk with you. I want to bear your burden. I value you. Third word, Philadelphos, brotherly. You know that word, Adelphos, born of the same worm, wor- womb. Worm. <laughs> yeah, that happens. You talk enough, you get in trouble. Born of the same womb. Brother, Adelphos, Philos, affection, warmth, friendly. Agape is what you do. Philos is what you feel. This is the warmth of affection because we're family. The third heart style that is non-negotiable with God in terms of enjoying His blessing and a life you would love, and that is to manifest a family-friendly heart. This is the heart attitude of personal warmth and affection that you can feel. This is saying to those in the body of Christ, you matter to me. I value you. We're family. Now, the church is a lot of things, but at a minimum, it needs to be a family. Yes, family struggle. This one has. We just talked through some of that. Family struggle. But families have a commitment and a resolve and affection that displays warmth, even if it's hard. Not cold, callous, distant, moody, or aloof. This is displayed in the eyes, the countenance, and the words. It is engaging. It is proactive. You know, one of the greatest tragedies is people can go to church and nobody pursue them at church as if they matter at all. I don't know how your church is, but I know at my church you had to work at that to communicate to people who aren't anxious to talk to people maybe they do not know or embarrassed because they've forgotten a name. One of the high qualities and values of the gospel is that we communicate, we're family, you're family, you matter to me, good morning, I care, you're welcome, you're important, Philadelphos. Not just the city of brotherly love, a church where love is displayed as family. Fourthly, A heart that validates the gospel and glorifies God is not only a harmonious heart, I want to get a long heart, a sympathetic heart, I seek to understand before being understood heart, or a family-friendly heart, we're family, but a tender heart. I'm going to punctuate this one because this is at the heart of where we have been this morning. Frankly, this may be the heart of any church and any family. Good heart. Great heart would be a way you could translate it. It shows up in two graphic places in the New Testament. It's a word which means for your inward parts, your intestines, your, your inner you. And it means that you have a wealth 
a greatness, a goodness, an attitude, a, a reality that flows out of you, that manifests itself in tenderness. But it's a unique word, and I'd like you to turn with me to Luke chapter 15 for the picture, because this word is used of the father who receives a prodigal home. There are two key thoughts in this word. The one is you have a passion to remedy and bring healing. It's used of the Good Samaritan, Luke chapter 10. Remember, he didn't care where the guy was, shouldn't have been on this road. Robbers come here, you're broken down, you've been beat up. I don't care where you are, I don't care who you are. You're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan, we don't mingle. I don't care what's happened to you. I don't care how it's happened to you. The Bible says of the Good Samaritan, he felt this word. He felt compassion. He had a great heart of concern that birthed, I don't care who you are, where you are, what's happened to you, I'm going to help you. Even at my cost, even at my risk, your injuries matter to me. The first nuance of this word has to do with your heart to address injury and loss in the life of another person. And the second one is you have a passion to restore and reconcile where relationship has broken. I love these words. You know this story. The prodigal says, I want what's mine. The younger brother says to the father. So he takes his inheritance ahead of time, which is a way of saying, I wish you were dead so I can get what is coming to me. The father gives it, dishonoring himself. The son abuses it, wastes it. He ends up in a pigsty. He ends up hungry. He ends up deciding, hey, what I've got isn't better than what I had. I'll go home and be my father's servant. And the father who had been embarrassed and shamed by the son who desired to take ahead of time, In a dishonoring way, what he felt belonged to him, he's headed home. Look at verse 20. You're going to find our word here for the tender heart, the great heart, the good heart. It's on display. This is what it does, verse 20. And he got up, referring to the uh, prodigal son, he got up from his mess, came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. He felt compassion. There's your word. Big-hearted, deep affection, great passion for him. And that passion caused him to run, to embrace, and to kiss him, and to restore him. The graphic illustration of this verse is the graphic illustration of what it means to be tender-hearted. It races to reconcile. It rushes to remedy injury. Notice the word saw. Obviously, he implies he's been looking. This is eyes for seeing. This displays the longing. The father's not happy that the son is not home, that the relationship is broken. He's anxious. Instead of avoiding, he's searching. 
Notice the word felt. He has a heart for healing. There's been a lot of injury. Where injury occurs, calluses can come, resistance can grow, resignation, numbness. That's not hard. That's natural. But this father who has this great heart feels a heart for healing. And instead of hardening, he's desiring. Third, notice he ran. He has a heart for not only healing, but feet for going. Instead of waiting, instead of being passive, he's proactive. He's running to reconcile. He's racing to restore. Notice the words embraced. That's arms for receiving. Instead of withdrawing. Instead of withholding. Instead of backing up. He's moving in. Tell you, you live in a fallen world with fallen people, people in close proximity because of depravity, because of the action of the enemy. There is injury. Amen? Stuff happens. The distinguishing mark of a Christian is what you do when people injure you. It's not if you'll get injured. It's when you get injured, what heart will you display? Hopefully, it's this heart that says, I can't wait. I'm anxiously looking. I'm willing and I'm running. And when you move, I'm moving. And my arms are open. My heart's receiving. And he kissed him, which is a way of saying, I'm pardoning. That's the great heart. Will you turn over to Ephesians chapter 4? We read this, talked about it. I want to punctuate it because this is the foundation for what I'm hopeful will happen in this church as the days unfold. Ephesians chapter 4. Brothers and sisters, all the things that matter the most going forward relationally are built on true forgiveness. And if there's any word in the Bible more misunderstood, it's that one. Let me tell you what forgiveness is. It's the releasing of debt. It's not because they repent. It's not because they ask for it. It's because you've received it. Because you've gotten great grace. Matthew 18, the 10,000 talents, the million four you owed couldn't pay. You received kindness from God. It's out of the wealth of his generosity to you. You're able to dispense release of debt to someone who owes you a lesser one. It's release. They may repent, they may get it, they may understand, they may do in part what you saw today. I own my contribution to this difficulty. But even if they don't, forgiveness is a choice you can make and a debt you can release. Yes, costly to you. It costs them nothing. It costs you because you're accepting a loss that they cannot pay. And when you do that, you are expressing the grace you've received, the forgiveness of release that you've enjoyed, and that changes everything relationally. As a matter of fact, without forgiveness, you can't live this word. This word is the product of releasing debt. 
This is the great heart that says, yes, I'm injured, but I've been blessed in the past. I have a bounty of blessing and benefit that God gave to me. And out of that storehouse of kindness, I'm granting grace. I don't know if you've read carefully Matthew 18, but when that wicked slave wouldn't release a 200 denarii debt. Do you remember what was said of him? Not only are you wicked, you're going to be handed over to the torturers or the tormentors until all is repaid. Anybody know who those guys are? I don't know who they are. I don't ever want to know who they are. So will my Father in heaven do to you if you do not forgive one another. Listen to this. Not with your lips, but from your heart. You can't pray without this. If you don't forgive others, neither will your Father in heaven forgive you. You forgive others, he'll forgive you. There's a big deal with releasing debt. It's unconscionable, Matthew 18, if you don't release debt having been released yourself. The big heart, this heart, I'm looking, searching, waiting, running, embracing, pardoning, restoring, it's the consequence of forgiveness. And the encouragement I want to offer the most to you is protect that priority. Practice that priority. You know what forgiveness is? It's not because you've forgotten. People say you forgive and forget. That is nonsense. Who forgets that? God doesn't forget. He just chooses not to call it to mind. He says, I will remember it against you no more. He's he's lost it. No, he hasn't lost it. He's choosing not to recall it. When you forgive, you're saying, I will not accuse or recall this debt anymore. It's released. You don't owe me. And when it comes to mind, I'm putting it right back where I put it. No debt owed. If you understand that, would you say amen? That's forgiveness. I didn't forget anything. I'm choosing not to call it to mind because I've given grace out of the grace I've received. That's the soil of this heart. Now, the reason I ask you to Ephesians chapter 4 is because it's played out grammatically right here. It's attached to words, which this text is that we've been talking about. Verse 29, you know this, worthy walking, chapter 4, because of all that God has privileged you with, chapter 4, verse 29, Ephesians, one of the aspects of a life worthy of the gospel and the weight of the goodness of God displayed towards you is that no unwholesome word would proceed from your mouth. You know that unwholesome's rotten, spoiled. It's the words that are toxic and, and make you sick. Let no unwholesome word. It's unhealthy. Proceed from your mouth. But only. Do you see that no and only? Those are important. Such a word as is good means it's practically good. It, it edifies. It creates strength and benefit and blessing. It builds up. And it has to be according to the need of the moment. Timely to, to edify and build up. Never unwholesome. Never hurtful. That it may give grace. Verse twenty. Nine, that it may give grace to those who hear it. Oh, and by the way, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Implication is, you violate this, you grieve the 
Spirit of God, the third person of the Godhead, God Himself. Grieve Him, injure His heart, pain Him. Now here we go, verse 31. First imperative. It's a passive verb. It means something you let happen. Let all bitterness, pakria, it means all the, the, the injury of woundedness. Pakria means to be stabbed. You've been wounded, words, actions, somebody's hurt you. Let the consequence of that injury and the heat that comes from it, that's the next word, wrath, it's frustration, it's, it's the heat from that injury. Anger, orge, it's now boiling over. Let the injury and the consequences which are hurtful and, and, and may bubble over that which results in clamor, which is a public altercation, verbal or physical, or slander. Those are the words behind someone's back that is meant to equalize because of the injury through slanderous, destructive, damaging. It may even be true, but the word slander means basically to injure with words, diminish and damage. Let all of that be put away from you. Let me tell you what the original language means. Let it go. You can hang on to that injury. Number one, it'll kill you. Number two, it will not allow your heart to sing. And we already talked about how likely it is we're going to get injured. The issue is what are you going to do with the injury? Ephesians 4.31 says, let it go. And then it goes on to say, these are the imperatives of command. This is not passive, let it go. And and in all malice means all the evil that goes with it. It's just a summary general word, gathering it all up. Sometimes it's translated spite. Verse 32, be kind to one another. That's an imperative verb that is active. You do that. Kind, practical deeds of goodness, gracious words, gracious acts. I don't know about you, but I can actually envision the capacity to will myself to do something nice to someone who doesn't deserve it. But I'll tell you what I can't do. That's the next word. Be kind and what? Tender-hearted. I don't know about you, but I can't manufacture that one. I may hold the door for you. I may help you across the street. I may mow your yard. I may fix your car. I may carry you a meal. I can be kind, but I'll tell you what I can't be, tenderhearted. And what do you mean by tenderhearted? A heart that says, I'm looking, searching, longing, you that has hurt me, to have this relationship restored. And I not only want to do good to you, I want to feel good toward you. And I want it to motivate me for a restored relationship. Sound impossible to you? It is to me too. The good news is the next clause is a phrase which describes how you can be kind and tender-hearted. It's an instrumental participle. It's called of means. It tells you how you can accomplish the be kind and the be tender-hearted. Are you ready? Verse 32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, even those that have injured you, that you've released debt. Because you're forgiving, by forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. All right, here's the secret weapon. The only means to the tender heart that looks like the father welcoming a son who shamed him and wasted everything. 
releasing debt. When you truly transact and release debt, forgiving others as you've been forgiven, something's birthed in your heart. And I'll tell you this, you can tell if you're forgiving, if these qualities, this heart style is in you. If it's not, you have work to do. Because forgiveness is the means to the great heart that looks for healing, has a passion to run, to restore and remedy injury and loss. Forgive one another just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Be imitators of God. If you understand that, would you say amen? Amen. Now, can I remind you that this is in the context of summing up, saying, listen, you need to have a get-along heart. You need to have I seek to understand before I'm understood heart. You need to be family-friendly, communicating the warmth of our affection one for another. And you need to be an agent having released debt who longs and looks for healing. That's what invites a life you're going to love and a blessing you couldn't imagine. And God is your advocate and ally. Well, I'm wrapping up here. Humble heart, you get this. Humble, low of mind, thankful for everything, deserving nothing. A humble heart is a you-go-first heart. Some places it's translated courteous and gracious. Be gracious. You read it today. Kempis read it. Your model, consider the needs of others is more important than yourself. This is that heart. All right, in conclusion, here's the kicker. As if that's not enough. Look at verse 9. Let this sit on you. The sixth heart style is a Christ-like heart. First Peter chapter 3 Watch the words. Not returning evil for evil. That's hurt for hurt, damage for damage, injury for injury. Or insult for insult. That's abusive speech. Christians, we can use language that's not obvious, but it can be equally hurtful. Hurtful speech. Not returning evil for insult or or evil for evil or insult for insult. But look at this. Adversative conjunction. On the other hand, giving a blessing instead. Ulageo, saying good. Praising with words. Finding the good and championing the good. I'm not going to injure you with my words. I'm not going to retaliate in kind. I'm actually going to respond in reverse. I'm going to act like Jesus acted. I'm going to bless you when you didn't deserve a blessing. I'm going to give you a word of praise. I'm going to find something good to honor in words and blessings as opposed to curses where you tear someone down. You seek to injure them. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to pray prayers of blessings for you. I'm going to ask God to bless you. I'm going to ask God to prosper you. Yeah, but you hurt me. I know. But I've got the heart that God gives because he's given me grace. He's blessed me when I was a cursor. He's sacrificed for me and paid the payment of my loss while I was the injurer and I'm giving what I got 
not what you deserve. Can you say amen to that? Can you imagine your home? Can you imagine this church? Can you imagine the body of Christ where our lifestyle normative was, you hurt me, I'm blessing you instead. You hurt me with your words, you hurt me with your life, you hurt me with your actions. I release debt, God wells up in my heart, and I give you what you don't deserve. That's the behavior that the world can't figure out. That's the undeniable evidence of a gospel that you proclaim. Can you say amen to that? See, my kids may not believe my religious words, but they cannot deny the God in my heart that does that. That's not normal. And that's what missionaries who represent the greatest king of all do when they proclaim his excellencies. They behave excellently. And they refrain their lips from injury. They refuse to walk down that divisive path. And they pursue like mad the peace that honors God, provokes him to bless and answer prayer. And who doesn't need God to bless and answer our prayers? The word pursue, peace, in this passage, means to lean against the wind, face all opposition, and pursue peace. That's the will of God. It's the heart of God. And that's what will change your life, this church, and this community. Can you say amen to that? Oh, sorry, Kempis. I preached today. I'm sorry. Spoke too long. All right, I want to invite you to stand with me, please. I want to just invite you to unite your hearts around this holy desire. I know if you know the Christ, I know you want to honor him. I know if you know the God who dispensed unbelievable blessing, sovereign choosing, I can't believe he paid this for me out of love for me. I can't believe he's done that. I know that if you have experienced God's grace, you want to live in a way that validates that grace. And to that end, it requires God and God and God and the encouragement of one another. So I'm going to invite you to pray with me as I close my part and invite you to unite together, asking God to make us such a people. Father, I thank you today for your amazing grace. I thank you for your goodness toward us. I thank you for the way you've provoked us to be who and what you want us to be. And I thank you for this sobering reminder that we can forfeit treasure and blessing, benefit and life. You can become our adversary when we choose to be callous or cavalier with these requirements that reflect your goodness. Lord, for your sake, make us, your people, this church, that kind of church. For their sake, for Burbank, for the communities that interface with our lives, marketplace, schoolyards. Lord, would you make us such a people that Others who witness this behavior will glorify you someday, even if they are not today, because they see the reality of the truth we proclaim because we live it. And God, I pray for our sake. We could love life and we could see good days. Bless this church as we commit ourselves to blessing you. 
In Jesus' name I pray and all God's people said, Amen.